Thanks for listening to our podcast. We've got more information and additional resources at probe.org slash podcast. And be sure to check out our life-changing Summer Mind Games Camp for high school and college students. Squeeze all of the miraculous out of the Bible and you have historical criticism, which according to Michael Gleghorn is a poor way to understand it. Now on Probe. Throughout the history of Christianity, students of the Bible have used many different methods of interpreting the text. But since the Enlightenment, one particular method, or rather family of methods, has been quite influential, especially in the academy. I'm speaking of what is often called historical criticism, or the historical critical method of biblical interpretation. So what is historical criticism, you ask? Although the term gets used in different ways, I will here be using it to refer to a method of biblical interpretation which attempts to read the Bible as a purely human document from the distant past. In other words, the historical critical method does not typically regard the Bible as divinely inspired. It is a merely human book, like any other, and should thus be read like any other book. In the past, and to some extent even today, scholars like to portray this method as scientific in character, able to obtain assured and objective interpretive results. But critics tell a different story. For example, Eda Linneman, who before her conversion to Christianity was a well-respected scholarly advocate of historical criticism, claims that in practice the so-called scientific character of this method is grounded in a prior assumption of naturalism, perhaps even atheism. As Linneman observes, research is conducted as if there were no God. Another critic of this method is the renowned Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga. After rehearsing certain principles of historical investigation, which many historical critics would endorse, Plantinga notes that these principles are understood to preclude God's direct involvement in the world. Because of this, he notes, such principles imply that God is not in fact specially inspired any human authors, in such a way that what they write is really divine speech addressed to us nor has he performed miracles of any other sorts. As I'm sure you can see, at least some of the results of this method come about simply because of assumptions the interpreter brings to the text. The problem, however, is that the assumptions are biased against Christianity in favor of naturalism. We must thus think rather critically about the historical critical method. But first, we need a bit of background on how and when this method originated. And we'll do this tomorrow. You've been listening to Probe with your host, Michael Gleghorn. If you want to be certain that how you read the Bible is right, then be sure to get your free copy of Michael's transcript, Historical Criticism and the Bible. Go to probe.org radio. That's probe.org radio. And join us next time as we reclaim and proclaim the truth, God's truth, here on Probe. This week we're discussing historical criticism, an influential method of biblical interpretation in the academy. Yesterday we learned that many historical critics believe that one should read the Bible in the same way one reads any other book from the ancient world. Today we'll briefly consider how and when this method originated. Although many helped develop the historical critical method, Johann Salamo Semler, an 18th century theologian, is widely regarded as its father. Simler was primarily interested in critical work on the canon of biblical writings. For our purposes, the canon can simply be thought of as the books of the Old and New Testaments. The Church regards these books as the divinely inspired Word of God, and hence completely authoritative for Christian faith and practice.
Semler, however, considered these books, especially those of the Old Testament, to be largely of merely historical interest. They might give us some interesting information about the religion of ancient Israel, or, in the case of the New Testament, the beliefs of the early church, but they could not be regarded, at least in their entirety, as the divinely inspired word of God. Hence, Semler was led to make a distinction between the scriptures and the word of God. Although the church had always considered the scriptures to be the word of God, Semler made a distinction between them. In his opinion, some books belong in the Bible through historical decisions of past ages, but do not make wise unto salvation. Books of this sort, he reasoned, can still be called scripture, for they are part of the biblical canon, but they are not the word of God, for in his view they are not divinely inspired. Although historical criticism continued to be developed after Semler, it's easy to see why many consider him to be this method's father. In his own study of the Bible, Semler generally disregarded any claims that either it or the church might make regarding its divine inspiration and authority, and attempted instead to read the Bible like any other book. In the opinion of theologian Gerhard Meyer, it's the general acceptance of Semler's view which has plunged theology into an endless chain of perplexities and inner contradictions. Before we can examine such difficulties, however, we must first consider why so many scholars see value in the historical critical method. And we'll do this tomorrow. This week we're considering the historical critical method of biblical interpretation. Although this method arose in the Enlightenment, its influence continues even today. Let's look at some of the benefits which have been claimed for historical criticism. We'll consider some of its problems a bit later. To begin, virtually everyone agrees that when you're attempting to understand a book of the Bible, it can be helpful to know something about the origin of the book. Who was the author? When did he live? What sort of things were happening at the time the book was written? Was the author influenced by any of these things, or attempting to respond to them in some way? Who was he writing for? How might they have understood him? Answering such questions can often clarify what the author may have been trying to communicate in his book. Historical critics are right to see this as an important part of understanding the books of the Bible. And most everyone agrees on this point. More controversial would be the principles of historical investigation originally proposed by Ernst Trelch in an essay written in 1898. These principles are still generally embraced, though with some modifications, by historical critics today. Briefly stated, Trelch proposed three principles, which can simply be called the principles of criticism, analogy, and correlation. Although there's no universal agreement about how these principles should be used in actually doing historical research, historical critical scholars have generally regarded these principles as helpful guides in critically evaluating what is written in the Bible in their effort to determine what really happened. This is considered a great benefit of historical criticism, for rather than simply accepting the claims of a biblical author uncritically, Trelch's principles provide some help in critically evaluating such reports in order to assess their believability. Now, in one sense, this is commendable, for it is good to search for truth about what the Bible is trying to teach us. But there's a problem with how these principles are typically understood by historical critical scholars. As the Christian philosopher Alvin Plantinga reminds us, such scholars generally take these principles to exclude any direct divine action in the world. That is, such principles forbid us to believe that God has ever directly intervened in the world which he has made. 
And for Christians, this presents a real difficulty with historical criticism. We'll discuss this further in tomorrow's program. This week, we're thinking about historical criticism, an influential method of biblical interpretation in the academy. Today, I would like to consider some of the problems with this method. According to Christian scholars Norman Geisler and William Nix, a fundamental problem with historical criticism is that it is based on an unjustified anti-supernatural bias, which it superimposes on the biblical documents. This can easily be seen by examining some of the things which have been written by proponents and advocates of this method. For example, Rudolf Bultmann, who was interested in demythologizing the New Testament, famously wrote, It is impossible to use electric light and to avail ourselves of modern medical discoveries and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. Similarly, another theologian has written that whatever the biblical authors may have believed about such things, we believe that the biblical people lived in the same world we do, that is, one in which no divine wonders transpired and no divine voices were heard. Now, if we ask such scholars why it is that we're to think that miracles are either unbelievable or impossible, we'll usually notice rather quickly that the responses are generally short on arguments and long on assumptions. That is, such scholars typically just assume that God is not directly involved in the world and that miracles never occur. But if a personal creator of the universe exists, and there are good reasons to think that one does, then why should we simply assume that he would never directly intervene in the world which he has made? Such intervention would hardly seem impossible, and if it produced an effect which would not have come about had nature been left to itself, then this could quite properly be regarded as a miracle. So it seems to me that if a personal God exists, then miracles are possible. And if miracles are possible, then it is nothing more than an unjustified anti-supernatural bias, as Geisler and Nix assert, to simply assume that the Bible's reports of miracles are all false and unbelievable. And since historical criticism of the Bible often begins with just such an assumption, it appears to offer us an inadequate method for correctly reading the Bible. Tomorrow we'll conclude by considering a preferable alternative to the historical critical method. This week we've been discussing historical criticism of the Bible. Yesterday we looked at some of its problems. Today we'll conclude by considering a preferable alternative to historical criticism, namely theological interpretation. So what is theological interpretation? As I'm using the terminology here, it's a method of reading the Bible like a Christian, with the aim of knowing God and of being formed unto godliness. Theological interpretation takes a sober and serious account of what Christianity is, believes, and teaches. It then attempts to read and interpret the Bible as a word from God about God. It's a radically different way of reading the Bible from that practiced by historical critics. Of course, as theologian Russell Reno reminds us, there is obviously a historical dimension to the truth found in the Bible. Nevertheless, he continues, to be a Christian is to believe that the truth found in the Bible is the very same truth we enter into by way of baptism, the same truth we confess in our creeds, the same truth we receive in the bread and wine of the Eucharist. But historical criticism attempts to read the Bible in the same way one would read any other book from the ancient world. It assumes that the Bible is merely a human book. The only way to really understand a book of the Bible, then, is to try to understand how it originated and what the original author was trying to say. 
Theological interpretation, on the other hand, does not view the Bible as a merely human book. Of course, it realizes that each of the biblical books has a human author, but it also insists, along with the consensual teaching of the Christian community, that each of these books also has a divine author. It thus views the Bible as a divinely inspired document. Is this a legitimate way to read the Bible? The philosopher Alvin Plantinga has written extensively on the theory of knowledge. According to him, the biblical scholar who is also a Christian has a perfect right to assume Christian belief in pursuing her inquiries. Doing so, he says, is just as legitimate as assuming the principles of historical criticism. Indeed, for the Christian, it is arguably better, for it allows us to read the Bible in continuity with the tradition and faith we profess and believe.